0: But as far as virtual and remote, it's still like
1: very much not where it needs to be. I'm Anthony Green, and this is the Our Future West Virginia podcast, where we're building local power in West Virginia by working with communities to fight for economic, educational, civil and racial justice. Today, we're joined via Zoom with the director of Families Leading Change and parent organizer for education justice for Our Future West Virginia, Jenny Anderson. Thanks so much for joining us, Jenny.
0: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: For those who are listening and don't know who you are or what you do, can you just give them an introduction to yourself and the work you're currently doing?
0: Yeah. So um, as Anthony said, um, I'm director of Families Leading Change. I work with parents um, that have children in the public school system and um, really try to empower them through policy pieces and navigate them through the school system when they're having trouble or um, they need a little bit of, uh, of a boost uh, communicating with their schools, whether it's an administrator or even a teacher or, or whatever. Um, really, to tr- really the ultimate goal is to have a positive outcome um, and really just kind of educate them on what policies might be for the education system that, that is going to ultimately help their child.
1: And it's no secret that At least for us here, it seems that West Virginia schools have had a roller coaster when it comes to opening back up for the school year. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, our organization kind of went remote right before the schools closed down on March 13th. So we were kind of like, you know, already trying to reinvent what our organizing was going to look like um, for our future West Virginia. Um, I kind of had a little bit of a head start because I do use social media um, to help organize parents and get education pieces out there because parents in particular, when you're talking about uh, social media, that is typically Facebook is where they're at. Um, most of them you know some do other you know formats or whatever but um, I, I have been very successful in reaching parents and helping them through Facebook so when the schools closed down on March 13th um, although it kind of like our organization expected to um, kind of, you know, pump back and and think that we weren't going to have as much work in particular when it came to organizing, I found that I had even more organizing work because you have frantic, frustrated parents that needed guidance. So when that first happened, I had a lot of people coming to me asking what they could do. They were unhappy with, you know, how maybe remote learning was going at home. They didn't know who to contact. They didn't know what to do. So, my job was to really kind of teach them and how you know how to connect to their local school boards, those elected members, and maybe the central offices, which included the state or the um, the county superintendent, and help them navigate that through that process so they could get a lot of their questions answered.
1: So, when you walk into a School that's been reopened, what does it look like for students and teachers?
0: So since schools reopened and and I'll be transparent, I have a daughter that's a sophomore in high school in Cabell County. Um, and when those my county presented their reentry plans, she she as a sophomore, she's very smart. She researched herself, like, you know, the options and things like that. Um, As mom, I kind of, you know, because I have a lot of fears and, you know, of course, don't want her to get ill or or anyone to get ill for that matter. I thought she would land on virtual school, but when she researched virtual school, she wasn't real happy. She didn't think she would be challenged enough. She didn't think it was best for her. So we ended up sending her the blended. That's what she wanted to do, which was very scary as mom. And truth be told, the first day of school, I was a a mess. And I think I even picked her up at school because I didn't want her riding the the curb. She calls it the Corona bus, (laughs) which truth be told, there aren't very many students on the buses right now, which is kind of sad in, in a way but um, you know at least it's safe or when she got home and I started asking her questions because we knew we went through Schoology is like the big state system right now that um, kids or students get on there and parents and they can see you know they get their work downloaded there they get their class um, assignments they can see who's in their class how many students and whatnot. So before my daughter started school, that was a big issue. That was a big issue with educators and parents, how many kids were gonna be in the classroom, right? And we know that education in in normal times, the less students that a teacher has in the classroom, the better the education they're gonna get, right? That's research-based. But during the pandemic, it wasn't just about the education, it was about the safety. So um, when my daughter started school, Um, That was something that we looked at before we made a total decision to send her back to that blended version of school where she was going to be there two days a week. And then the three days after that, she would be learning remotely at home. Um, But she had, um, I think the most students in her class um, are maybe 12. And for the most part, it's actually less than six. So um, that is kind of what schools for the most part are looking like now. You know, because you have a split group, you have, you know, people that decided all virtual, so you don't have those, you know, students going into the building, you have less students, therefore the classroom sizes or the class ratios are a lot smaller, so, which is a good thing, also a sad thing, but the main thing was making sure Because there was a lot of worry and fear that the school's systems weren't going to be following protocols when it came to CDC guidelines and things like that. And, you know, and for the most part, I'm happy to report they are. You know, my daughter has one one teacher that was not wearing a mask. There's five students in the classroom. So that was a little alarming. Uh, But, uh, you know, with that being said, the school, you know, at least in Cabell County, had taken you know it seriously and and they are following the guidelines as far as that goes Um, there was there were concerns over ppe um, the personal protection equipment um, you know wipes disinfecting procedures masks uh, desk shields, all that stuff that was needed before school started. Um, and there, you know, I know the state's given a lot of money towards that and provided schools with things, but then there was an issue about quality over quantity and things like that. Um, I think a lot of those counties spot really hard to get more quality things or safer things when you're talking about disinfectants and chemicals, um, which, you know, again, happen on the local level, not the state level. It looks like blended is almost more successful than the virtual because there's a lot of frustration with virtual. What was not being prepped, um, and, and we advocated for very, you know, big, um, on a very big level was, again, that they needed to really develop a plan that um, improved remote and virtual learning from March and May, March through May, and they didn't do that. So there there really wasn't even any, any testing, there was not orientation to families and parents. Like I always said there needed to be deep orientation for those parents when it comes to like Teaching them how to operate those tech devices that were being provided, or teaching them troubleshooting. You know, okay, what if you wake up and Schoology's offline? It's not working. Or what if your app that your child is using isn't working and you can't? You know, they can't be educated. So what do you do? Um, There was none of that happening, and there still isn't um, for the most part. It's just more troubleshooting mode. So on the on the blended mode, I think it's going pretty well. Um, although it is still scary because there's not a very good accountability system when it comes to letting parents know when a, a, a student or a school staff member has been um, either infected or exposed. But that's one piece of it. But as far as virtual and remote, it's still like very much like not where it needs to be. So still working on that with parents, um, as I mentioned before, and trying to figure out, um, you know, there's one teacher in Kanawha County that has developed a a great plan and a a PowerPoint she shared with me um, last week. Um, And it it really maps out those things, what we need to do right now, you know, we should have done it six months ago, right now what we can do to improve that. She's put together like kits, science kits and things like that that can easily be dropped off two parents in a delivery system or a, um, on a bus route or whatever um, with the food or picked up at the school with the food or whatever. So, um, you know, we're hoping that those type of things catch on, that we can really promote them and help our kids and really make that remote virtual system a lot better than it is. Because we, yes, we all agree that it's not the best way to educate, but how can we improve it at this point?
1: And making the decision to how to educate kids and what to do about it, how does a school district determine if it's able to open back up or if it's going to do virtual school? What, what exactly goes into that process?
0: Right. <laughs> that, I mean, that is a loaded question right now, right? <laughs> so we all know about the governor um, who um, in the department of ed and um. The Health and Human Resources, DHHR, developed this map system, this color map system um, that is um, in effect right now. It has been fluid from from the beginning, so it has changed. We've seen a lot of changes in the metrics and how they determine how schools open up. And then we've seen a lot of um, changes. I mean, they've added colors, you know, in the last couple weeks, um, and it can be quite confusing for parents, right? Um, it's, it confuses me quite frankly, a lot of the time, um, you know, when you look at numbers of, as far as infection rates and as far as like, um, you know, who's been tested in, in each county. Each county developed a plan, a reentry plan, that was based on the guidance that the state gave um, back in July. And so they had a toolkit that, the State Department of Ed had a toolkit that was released and each county was supposed to develop their um, individual county plan because of course, like I said before, local control is, is how it's done. So each county, all 55 counties had their own plan that was best for their, their students. So um, you might have a county that has a five-day reentry plan. You might have a which also offers a blended plan. Which a blended plan would be your child would go to school maybe two days, three days, sometimes even four days, and then they would have a you know some days that were remote where they would work from home, or they might have the choice of um, going all virtual. Um, which would mean that the, the um, students were learning at home, but it required internet access. I mean, it was very clear from the beginning that it would require internet access. So, you know, when you talk about how they determined a entry schools, we also have to talk about those choices that were determined in the first place. Sometimes they weren't really choices, but more ultimatums where a, a family might not have, you know, they might have might have had to decide how to st- send their child back safety over education or education over safety. So um, that's been a really big issue that a lot of families have had to decide. Um, you know, if you're talking working families that needed child care, they may not have had that decision to make to st- to go virtual, even though they felt like their child was safer at home, they've had to put them in the school. And then vice versa, you might have a family, grandparents, for, for example, we have 20,000 known grandfamilies raising their grandchildren in the state. So you may have had a grand family that may have felt safer with virtual, but didn't have the capacity to do that either. So they've sent their child back into the school, whether it's two days, four days, five days, whatever. So back to as far as how to terminate, all of that stuff kind of really, I feel like should play a role in that and a part. And the metric system that exists right now does not even take into consideration what's going on in a school. So if there are outbreaks or there are people, individuals that have been tested positive, that map does not reflect any of that. So what they actually determine on that map to whether or not a school is supposed to go back or not, the, um, you have green, which is the green light, you know, I I call it the red light, green light game. (laughs) Red light means you don't go back in between those two colors, you have orange, which means you can Um, If if a county feels like they're safe, they can still do blended and virtual together. um, So they can still have kids in the building or students in the building. And then you have yellow, which is like the step before green, um, which says, yeah, you all can keep doing this. And then in between there, there's this gold color that was added, which um, so... (sighs) You know, a lot of it has to do with a lot of parents, and this is where a lot of kind of division happens, but um, right now is that there are a lot of parents that have kids or children that play sports. So I think the goal was kind of developed to really in, incentivize the, the the parents that have children that are playing sports to go get tested because it's based on the um, test rate just has to stay under 3%, I believe. And if, if a county is determined to be gold on Saturday at five o'clock, they can go back into school, they can play sports and things like that. If you're in the orange, then the sports part of it and the extracurricular activities are limited. They're not totally stopped, but they are limited so they can train and keep doing conditioning type things, but they... Um, they can't actually play competitive sports with other counties. So when you talk about what determines um, when a school system can open back up or not, it seems to be a lot of it is sports driven, which drives a lot of us crazy, um, because we know really that shouldn't be (laughs) kind of the priority right now. It should be the, the safety and the education of our kids or our children.
1: Sounds like there's a lot that goes into it, and it can get really confusing and messy. And it seems like it could be really easy for people, parents, and community members to just get confused and not really know what is happening.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and and that's the thing. Every um, this is all based on um, a Saturday at five o'clock date that determines whether your child's going to go back to school or not. Um, It was nine o'clock p.m. and the governor, you know, got some feedback. And I I believe the state superintendent, Clayton Birch, got feedback that parents needed more time to prepare Um, for things like childcare and things like that, just like you would during a snow day, right? You know, you you get a notification the day of sometimes that your school's closed and parents have to kind of scramble around and figure out what they're gonna do with their children sometimes if you have a job. Well, um, you know, this puts an extra layer to that, right? So when it was 9 p.m., originally the parents were informed and could look at that map to see if their child was gonna go back to school in their county um they they backed it up to 5 p.m well three hours doesn't really make much difference on a saturday right <laughs> you know if you're trying to find child care or whatever but that was kind of their reasoning for changing it from 9 p.m to 5 p.m but it still leaves a lot of families you know there's not much you can can do on a saturday um as far as contacting babysitters or childcare facilities to try to figure out what you're going to do or your, your boss, um, you know, um, which is why, you know, and and again, it gets a little layered and complicated, but when they were developing their plans as a state, I feel like there's kind of a missed boat opportunity that they could have worked with chamber of commerces and businesses, local businesses and tried to kind of, um, you know, build that into the system of the maps or whatever they were gonna to use to determine schools reopening so that parents were less stressed when it came to finding childcare, like maybe businesses, and I know that there are some a handful that actually have made accommodations um, since all this started to where if there is uh, a county that closes down because of an infection outbreak or um, the seven day rolling numbers don't look so good, Um, that they're making accommodations so those parents can actually take their kids to work while their county um, is only allowing remote learning instead of the in-person learning. So um, to me, you know, as a parent and and an advocate for parents, it made sense to me that they should have probably worked with the business sector and the community from the get-go instead of just really focusing on in-person, getting our kids in school, because we knew ultimately we were all gonna probably have to get a remote at some point, even though it was county driven or a county decision. We know that those numbers can't stay in a positive you know, state from week to week. So uh, it kind of like yo-yos our kids or our students back and forth. Um, and to, it creates this instability when it comes to education and family situations, right? so um yeah it's very complex and frustrating (laughs) for a lot of parents
1: yeah and i imagine that not all counties are created equal and that some are affected more than others
0: absolutely i mean you know and, and that of course then you get on the subject of internet access and wi-fi and broadband and all that stuff in a rural county and even in the numbers in the map system Say a nursing home has an outbreak or a prison has an outbreak or now universities have an outbreak. Um, it's based on that 100,000 person number. So if you had 500 kids that actually tested positive in a university or 500 senior citizens that tested positive in a nursing facility, um, they are only counted as one when it comes to the MAP system that kind of like makes it a little bit more messy um, because we don't know actually, because like I said before, there is no part of that MAP system that includes school outbreak or, you know, positive cases. So you rely on the local health departments to get that information out to parents. And then the ca- the county um, school system contacting those parents to let them know if their child's been, um, you know, uh, exposed to either a, A school staff member, or a parent, or I mean, a a student that has tested positive for COVID nineteen. So, how that affects different counties from others? The rural counties, you know, they they tend to suffer a little bit, you know, more than you know your bigger city counties, because of course their numbers in the map aren't based on one hundred thousand; they're based on a lower number. So. You know, we saw something happen this past weekend with Logan County. They had offered blended learning, where kids could come to school part of the week and then remote, and then they also um, offered a virtual, all virtual, so you could learn at home. When the map came out on Saturday, or you know, when they were deciding what color Logan County would be, it was it was in a gold state. (laughs) So they could have like taken one set of numbers which is based on infection rate and another set of numbers based on seven day rolling average. The governor and Clay Marsh who is our health czar for the state who, um, who ultimately makes that decision honestly when it comes to that Saturday number decided to put them in the red. When that did that, and you know, he looked at both of those numbers or both of those maps. He put them in the red, which ultimately left them without sports. It left them learning at home. The Board of Education in Logan County went back last week and decided to just offer virtual temporarily in their county. So that kind of affected it too. But it left a lot of parents frustrated, especially, you know, the ones that had children that were playing sports. And it caused a little bit of controversy because when you looked at those numbers, it really didn't make sense for them to be red. Actually, it made more sense for them to be orange, which would have left it more of a county decision on what they did. So it's it's just really a convoluted you know, system in itself. But when it comes to rural counties and you're talking about counties that don't necessarily have very good internet access and you're asking all of these these students to learn at home without that and not to be prepared for it, it's very frustrating, you know, as you can imagine for parents. And, you know, we all want children in school. We know that they're going to learn better in the school building with their teachers, but is it safe? And, you know, and that's, that's kind of like creates this division um, between parents right now, which is unfortunate because I think we're all saying the same thing about what we want for our children, but, um, it seems to be kind of like divided between sports parents and non-sports parents, which is really sad. I would say too, because I'm you know I'm very passionate about the food access issue um, and how children are actually being fed during the pandemic. Um, you know, we, a partner of mine, Liz Brunello, who's with American Friends Service, we started back in March, actually the, the day of <laughs> the school closure, because we knew um, this was going to be an issue. We started a um, Facebook group called West Virginia Food ER, and it was really to provide resources to parents on how they could get food from the school to their children you know during the pandemic and it has gone strong it is you know it's still going strong because of course with the school the school starting back up there's still food access issues but um, beyond the resources we provided that were kind of in tandem with the west virginia department of bed they provided information but we kind of went beyond that and provided some local um, mom and pop type organizations that were offering free food for students and families um, during the pandemic and during school when it was in session and even in the summer um, that the Department of Ed didn't necessarily share um, because there's our official school sites or official, you know, summer feeding sites. So beyond the resources, we also offered volunteers. So we had volunteers in, you know, most of counties, I think forty-four out of fifty-five counties that were actually delivering food to students and their you know, their families. Sometimes our volunteers would actually go to the school and pick up food boxes because they offer these five-day boxes or these three-day boxes of food to students because they still, when school's in session, they still had to provide food for all the students. That's how they get reimbursed from the United States Agriculture Department, USDA. And they were doing a great job. I mean, during March through May, um, I mean, you would often hear the governor would boast about it. Um, our state superintendent and his team would boast about how great it was going. Of course, service personnel were awesome, they were our heroes. But since school reentry plans and schools started back um, and going looking at the state toolkit, there have been limited um, opportunities to get that food. So, a lot, most of the counties, if they have, if they offer, an in-person school option, like the blended or, or whatever. The virtual school students still have to be provided for, which are at home five days a week. But often it is, you have to, if you're a parent, you have to come to the school and pick up the food. And it's only in a certain window, like it might be a two or three hour window that you can do it, which presents a problem for all these you know parents that don't have transportation or maybe they work and they can't go pick up that food. So it, you know, it leaves a deficit, at least like, you know, inequality and inequity or whatever you want to call it um, for those students. So one of the things that we really nudged the Department of Ed to do um, was can we create, you know, is there a way that some volunteers can like, you know, come to the school and, and pick up those boxes for those families that need them delivered? because often, you know, you know, back in March through May, they were offering bus stop option. Um, we haven't seen a lot of that through school reentry, but this was an opportunity for volunteers to go and actually help out and deliver the food. When we first contacted them, they said, you know, that wasn't possible, that USDA said, you know, in black and white that, that, that volunteers could not do that because of food quality and health department um, issues. Since then, Um, We were I call it a win. We did get follow up from them that they they have given guidance to counties. If you're a parent out there that wants um, or needs a school delivery instead of like you having to go pick up a box, you should contact your local food service director at the county level or your principal at your school and let them know and let them know that there is guidance now from the department of ed and the office of child nutrition that they can create a parent um, permission slip form and it is now um, very much an option for food delivery to happen um, via a you know, a private sector volunteer or even a parent volunteer, because we know there are a lot of parent volunteers that probably aren't going in the school as much as they were um, to volunteers, but they still want to do something. And that would be a great way to utilize people from PTOs or PTAs, those parent groups that are often in schools, especially elementary schools, to really help out some families. Beyond that, we also know that there are a lot of families that don't have things like printers or don't have, um, you know, because they don't have access to internet, but they still, you know, are having to learn at home. And we know that they are still in need of school supplies, printers and things like that. So we're hoping that by, you know, giving parents information that their schools have money and funds for those things, that they can contact them and request those things and get them also delivered or or able to pick them up to help those families that need those things to keep, you know, to help you know, enhance their child's learning because we know equity is just, you know, it's, it's not there. It's a big piece of this and we know it was amplified through the pandemic, but we really are trying to think out of the box to really try to, um, you know, address some of those issues because we know we can't, you know, we're often here right now. It's like, you're, um, you're, you're trying to like fix things on a plane. That's like literally (laughs) midair and it's hard to do and there's no, um, right or wrong type of a way of doing it we know our teachers are doing everything they can to help our students but we need to kind of really just think out of the box and think of creative ways to kind of help those families that don't have equal opportunities and equal access to education tools food and all those resources that others do
1: yeah i imagine this pandemic and the school system disproportionately affects lower income families especially when you were saying with access to food. I know most or a lot of students uh, rely on school foods as their meals, and a lot of people are don't have access to internet for virtual learning.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's and it's been, like I said, it was amplified through March through May. Um, you know, there's been a lot of question as to, from parents and educators, like, why did we not work on those things? And in in that through those summer months, you know, it wasn't like, you know people weren't trying to figure out some of those things privately but it didn't seem like it was a big piece of you know the state toolkit or even you know county um, reentry plans and pandemic or not i am i feel very strongly what needs to happen is better communication with families um you know, family engagement needs to really be amplified. I feel like that's what we've all been missing. You know, we can talk about testing and academics and education and success of one student next to another student, but I think the big thing, knowing what our state makeup is and opioid crisis and grand families and kinship care and all those things we know that create really, you know, huge inequities and, and race, you know, for that matter, and, and discipline, how discipline referrals are between, you know, your black students and your white students. It's crazy, you know, if you if you really study that data. But we know that those things really, I, I feel like they've wasted, <laughs> wasted a, this pandemic on trivial things when they could have really built an infrastructure knowing what happened in March through May and built something really special for West Virginia because we are unique and you know, with our rural areas and and counties and things like that and really listened to the parents that, you know, and and listened to what they had to say, what was working, what was not. And I don't feel like they've done that, you know, a very good job of it. Though What I'm trying to do and what a lot of parents are trying to do right now is try to fix that, even though we've started. What are your needs? Like I do these temperature checks on Facebook a lot and just kind of like survey, organically survey parents. um, How's it going? You know, what do you need? What can make it better? What's going great? You celebrate your successes too, right? But really wanting to push for some of those those things to be dealt with and fixed instead of just telling, you know, we hear all the time, yes, we know we have problems, but nobody seems to really want to reach deep and fix it. So again, going back to the policy, which I talked about in the beginning is like really connecting all of these deficits and these things that parents are struggling with to the policy piece that shows that schools are responsible for making sure that all students have um, all the tools and resources that they need. It doesn't matter if there's a pandemic or not. They still are supposed to provide them with these things, right? So um, that's kind of where we're at right now. <laughs> you know, I was like trying to, you know, yes, we have a problem, but how, how can we fix it right now?
1: And what are some of the things that you're working on to push for a safer atmosphere for education?
0: We tried back um, in July and August to try to like convince the state that, remote learning was where we kind of needed to start when when you talked about planning and um you know the five day or the in school face-to-face learning that's all gravy right i mean that can always be figured out because we have cdc guidelines and things like that but our state from what i was told last year has close to 25 percent of our students have some type of an individual education plan an iep now that might be partly tag students, which are talented and gifted, but the most part of, of that is able challenge students and whatever that spectrum looks like. So a lot of the work that I do is working with those parents and trying to uh, make sure that even though we're in a pandemic that those, you know, those federally, federally law or federal laws that are required to provide services for those students are still happening. And working with them to really like ask them, okay, well, you know, what are, what are your counties doing or your schools doing, um, and and when it shifts back and forth from say an in person type of situation to a remote situation, are they rising, you know, to the to the um, occasion? Or are they like still providing these services? And if they aren't, how can we, you know, really um, make sure they do that? Because a lot of of what happened in the beginning before school started on the 8th of September, you would have a parent that decided on virtual, but schools were actually calling these parents in some cases and saying, hey, we know you have a special education student, feel like they need to be um, switched to in-person school because it was easier for the school system. It may not have been easier for the parent or the student, but it was easier for the school system. So addressing those things. Another thing is, um, you know, discipline. We don't want the school system to create a new breed of discipline issues because children may have come from a family that don't believe in masks or don't believe that, you know, this pandemic's real. And so they've been taught from the home to not be compliant with some of the CDC guidelines. So, we want to make sure if a school cuz a lot of the schools have put that into their discipline policy or their their school policy that if, you know, you're not wearing a mask as a student, you're going to get written up or you're going to get sent to some sort of isolation or detention. Well, that's all good and well, but what are you doing a to- really fix that. Are you offering education to that student? Are you offering education to that family to, so they understand the importance of the mask wearing? The same goes for kids that maybe be, may be learning at home in the virtual program. We want to make sure that we, we're not creating situations where those kids are maybe out on the street in their downtime, you know, who are supposed to be out, you know, doing virtual learning that they're not, you know, targeted by neighbors or police or the community as not being in school, if that makes sense. And it kind of creates and that they're harshly punished, you know, instead of like really figuring out how to help them, if that makes sense. So we're kind of aware. We're trying to get ahead of that because we feel like that might be coming. So really working with parents on educating them about those policies and how they can help their students. So, yeah, it's, it's, again, so many layers, um, You know, I I have trouble keeping up myself, but um, the main thing, and and then we're going to talk about this next is um, really get involved with your local school improvement councils.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about local school improvement councils? What are those?
0: Yes. So um, local school improvement councils, um, also called LSICs, are mandated by state legislation to be in every school in our state. And they are a a, a tremendous tool, an advisory council to, um, to really, you know, make a difference in your school. They are under the Support and Accountability Policy 2322 under West Virginia Department of Education. They were purposely put in that policy this past year to give it more teeth, to make sure that people were aware of local school improvement councils, because they've been around for over 20 years but they've been kind of watered down in the last few years and weren't taken seriously. But they are made up of three elected parents of the school, three teachers of the faculty senate in the school, two service personnel at the school, one has to be a bus driver that transports children to and from the school. They are made up of three community at-large members, which are one has to be a business, a local business member, and the, you know, and the other two can be, you know, a community organization like us. And then it, it includes the principal who's also a voting member. And it includes most importantly students. It can include students. The only people that aren't elected are the three at-large members. Um, they are appointed by the principal. But they are, it's a voting democratic um, process where they are elected. It follows Robert's rules, which is a very formal process of running a meeting and, and making decisions by vote. And they, they have a lot of power. So they work on the school strategic plan, which is the plan that the school makes to improve the environments for the students and the curriculum and and all that for the students all students Um, they work on the discipline policy so they look at ways that maybe discipline is harming students instead of helping them and they're supposed to analyze that really critically and um, especially when it comes to at-risk students who may be on that border of like dropping out or whatever and um working on those strategies to to keep you know, kids in school and, and, and um, improve their situation. They can work on the crisis prevention and management plan, which I see was a big thing, that a big missed opportunity when you're talking about what's going on now in the pandemic. If um, the LSICs would have been working on that, they would have had kind of a skeleton plan on what happens when something like this occurs or or a natural disaster or a safety You know, issue um, that might happen at the school. So they could have, you know, worked on those together with the Faculty Senate, they can improve, you know, lunchroom strategies, they can actually this is the best part of it, which people don't know and don't utilize. They can create out of the the local school improvement council, a waiver that goes outside of county or state policy that can change their curriculum in the school, can change administrative efficiency, community engagement, and pretty much anything um, they feel that that's going to help their students um, at the school. So again, they have a lot of power. They are public meetings, just like a school board meeting, you know, your county or your state school board meeting. So anyone can attend. You don't have to be a member. There should be a place on the agenda for delegations or for the public stakeholders to speak and give feedback or express concerns. This is, like I said, mandated, but not utilized. So a lot of the work that I do is with parents and educating them and even educators for that matter and administration educating them on what the local school improvement councils are and what they can do, the potential, because when you talk about data, you know, which is, you know, we want everything to be kind of data and scientifically driven, right? These councils could be the collectors. They could create committees under LSIC to focus on grand families or kinship care relationships or um you know our homeless population of students things like that they could really focus on and make a really you know huge impact on these students and developing strategies to help them we our organization a little over a year ago went on a tour and educated i think it was we're up to about 30 counties that we went to and educated parents, educators, and whoever wanted to attend in these trainings, and we taught them about the hierarchy of public education in our state, and we talked about LSIC policy and how you could use it to your full potential. Um, it, was, it was actually very much supported by West Virginia Department of Ed and the current superintendent, Dr. Payne, and we made a lot of headway. So there, you'll see a lot of parents. There's a lot more involvement than there used to be. We're not there yet. It's a marathon, not a sprint. But um, most recently, we did develop a, a, we call it the West Virginia PEP Squad program, which it actually puts parents in leadership per, um, you know, positions in their counties to um, work on um, recruiting parents to be a part of their LSICs. And we even have one in, in Charleston, Dr. Shaniqua Smith, who is a parent and is an amazing woman. In her own right, she um, has a community LSIC group that actually you know, works with parents and educates them on not just LSIC, but a lot of things, and really engages that community in Charleston on doing a lot of things. One of our PEP squad parents, Cheryl Hoffman from Mason County, who also works with Putnam County, uh, managed to work with her superintendent and get a, an LSIC tab added to their um county website which was really exciting because um it gives a lot of information to parents um, and really needs to happen on every county website but um that was pretty impressive and made me proud uh, as a as an organizer myself to watch what's what's been happening
1: and in an ideal world what does the West Virginia school system look like during this pandemic?
0: I mean, honestly, I think it looks like everybody working together, community-based, right? That is how we're going to win when it comes to not only the education piece of it, the academic piece of it, the mental and social, emotional health piece of it, but also the health and safety piece of it. Because if we're not working together, if we're not working as an individual school and your LSICs who works with, has a direct relationship, by the way, with the elected school board members or should in in, in a policy they're supposed to be. Um, if they're not communicating with them and then that county is not communicating with the local health department and the local health department and the county is not communicating with the state we're not going to get through this very successfully and i think that's the biggest disappointment and breakdown that we've had is everything started top down and not from the bottom up so you know, I really want to encourage people to do that. You know, we have a toolkit that's a school board, how-to toolkit, it's like School Board 101. So if you really want to make a connection and um, be a part of decision-making with your school board, we can connect you with them. We can teach you how to even go if you've never spoken to your school board, whether you're an LSIC member or not, you are a stakeholder if you are a parent, an educator, school staff member, community member. You're going to be, a, you know, you're affected too. If you're just a person that's in a Walmart with K through 12 students, you're, you're a part of this, right? Um, so we have a toolkit if you want to talk to that school board. It teaches you how to. It has some tips. It has a template letter you can send. You can adjust. Like, you know, we've included recommendations we've had where I've worked with students, um, parents, and educators on, you know, how to make special education better in a school system or how to really do some deep family engagement. Even though we've already started, um, we can still make it work. We have a list of every superintendent in the state that you can like email. Um, We have a list of county websites and some little bells and whistles about what's being you know what their specialties are on those websites like if they do have an LSIC tab or they have like contact information that would help you if they're doing their county board meetings via team meetings or via zoom or whatever links to that um, but we really want you to get involved. We want you to be engaged in your local school system, because, like I said, the autonomy is all on them. There is a policy that even allows a superintendent, a county superintendent, to override, um, you know, this map that we keep talking about, if they feel that their students are, um, their interest is not best served with that map. So, um, you know, all of this information is in there and hope you look at it hope you use it and if you do let us know um let anthony know let us know on our social media pages because um you know we really want to know that you know it's it's effective and if there's anything that we can help you with question wise or guidance please let us know
1: and if there are parents or even students listening to this podcast what would you want to tell them regarding this school year uh what advice would you would you give them
0: don't, don't give up. Don't lose hope. Because like I said, we're in a flying airplane. It's midair and we can still do this. Um, there are always people you can reach out to who have experienced um, you know, things outside of the pandemic that could be very helpful um, if you do have an issue. Um, please please contact us we can either if we can't help you we can connect you to someone that can help you whether you're a student or a parent or even educator at this point Um, we want you to be a voice we want you to speak up we want to empower you to speak up whatever that looks like for you Um, and we you know we've been doing this for a while we we have a lot of resources so um, I hope that gives you hope Um, and, um, just let us know what we can do for you.
1: Well, Jenny, thanks so much for talking with us about this.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: You can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Our Future WV. And if you want to support us and help bring local power to your community, feel free to subscribe to our newsletter at ourfuturewv.org, where you can donate and become a future builder for West Virginia. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Our Future West Virginia podcast. We'll see you next time.